And, uh, and uh, he treated this little ewe lamb as if it was his own daughter. Then there was another man, a rich man, who, uh, who had some guests. And in order to make some provisions for them uh, hastily, he took, he seized this, this other man's little ewe lamb and killed it and butchered it and prepared it for his guests. And this parable incites the rage, the anger of King David after he had just done that very thing. And he says this, he says this impulsively and self-incriminatingly, he says, that man, verse tw- chapter 12, verse 5, that man deserves to die. And then Nathan says to him, you are that man. You are that man. In Mark 12, we have another parable that really accomplishes the same purpose. It is delivered to the same end and yields the same result. Well, we'll see how the response is a little different. But this time, it's not against a king. It is against the Sanhedrin, who are nevertheless the rulers of the land at the time of the New Testament. And he delivers this parable against them because they are planning to kill him. We know from the from Second Samuel that David did repent, and we have to ask ourselves as we anticipate the outcome of this parable: Will the Sanhedrin repent? Well, let's see. The parable itself is given in verses one through nine. One through nine, the indictment, this this impulsive indictment. Uh, is given in verses 10 through 11. And then verse 12, we get the response. So the parable itself, the indictment, and then the response. Mark writes, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others, he had one more to send. A beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give this vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture, the the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. They were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. We see at the beginning of verse 1 that Jesus is beginning to speak to them in parables. And we've already addressed the the purpose and the function and the future of the parables. 
Notice that verse 1 tells us he is, he's beginning to speak to them. Who is the them? Well, this is an example of the, one of the drawbacks, uh, uh, the way that the uninspired uh, chapter divisions and the verse markings uh, can possibly and potentially work against us. Because if you're reading uh, the Bible on your own and maybe you've, you've uh, set apart to read one chapter a night or, or one or two or three, however many, you're reading by chapters and you might have read up until the end of chapter 11 and then you, you close the Bible, you go to bed, and then you uh, come here the next day and you may think that you are in a completely different setting. This happens a lot. You know, there, there are many TV shows that you will watch where uh, there's a multi-part episode, and when you, watch, when you start the second, it'll begin with the last time on Deep Space Nine or, or whatever it is that you're watching, and it will recount. It'll give a very brief recounting of, of the context so that you know where you are in the overall narrative. Well, if you, this is something you have to provide for yourselves if you, are, if you stop at 11.33 and then whenever resume at 12 verse 1. So this is a, this a, this is a drawback of, a cha- of an uninspired chapter break. This is the same scene. Who's the them? This is the, this is the same scene as 11, 27 to 33, where Jesus was challenged by the, by the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders of the people. And this, I realize I didn't say this last time. These people do not like each other. The, the Sadducees and the Pharisees do not cooperate very often. They hate each other. The, the Pharisees were the ultra-conservatives and the natural, nationalists. They might have been naturalists, I don't know. They were nationalists, and uh, they, were, they were ultra-purists. The, the Sadducees were the compromisers, and they, you might say that they were in bed with the Romans. Uh, they were uh, very closely associated with the Greeks, and that was something that the ultra-puritistic uh, Pharisees would never do. So they had very different philosophies. They, they, did, they believed in different bodies of Scripture. They didn't like each other, but yet we see them united when they're challenging Jesus. And one man has said that war makes strange bedfellows. And that is what's happening here. And this is the same scene. Uh, Jesus is, has just finished his confrontation with the Sanhedrin or he's, he's just finished their confrontation, but he's not done with, with them. He has just turned, if you remember, their trap that they had carefully crafted and laid out for him. He just spun it around and shoved it right back at them. They were hoping to put him between a rock and a hard place where, where they would ask him a question, and if he answers this or if he answers that, they could nail him with blasphemy. He turns that around and poses them a question, and if they answer this or if they answer that, they'll be stoned by the people. And so these, uh, these no intellectual know-it-alls had to say, we don't know. One of the hardest things that an intellectual could ever say, I don't know. And so now Jesus, he, he, he has responded to their offense, and now he is going on the offensive. And he gives them this parable. And uh, don't be mistaken, this is a parable of warning. This is, this is not a parable to teach warm fuzzies. Uh, about the Christian life. This is a parable of warning. This is a parable of certain coming judgment against the Sanhedrin. So the parable begins in verse 1 with with a man. And he plants a vineyard. And we see in verse 1 that this man does everything necessary to ensure that this will be a good, profitable 
vineyard. He, he builds a wall. He digs a vat under the wine press. And he provides the wine press. He builds a tower. The, the wall that he builds, this would not only demarcate his, his property and his boundary line, but this would also keep uh, uh, passerbys, this would keep animals, this would, this would be one uh, first level of defense against thieves and, and uh, brigands. Uh, and then there's a vat that he puts in to collect the juice for the wine. That's one of the way, you know, some of the, some of the produce would be taken straight to market and sold as grapes. Most of it would be processed into wine. And that's where the buku bucks would be, because wine can last for a long time. Then there is a tower, and the tower would, would be a multi-purpose building. It would be a place where they could store uh, tools and seed uh, for, the, for the vineyard. It would provide shelter from the heat, and it would provide safety for the vineyard, because the tower itself would be about 15 to 20 feet tall, and you, it would be a lookout post. And you could even fire arrows on somebody trying to get into the vineyard. So as we progress through verse 1, we, we see after this man has set up his vineyard, what does he do? He rents it out to vine growers, and then he goes on a what? A journey. Just like Frodo Baggins goes on a journey. Now, in the past several centuries, the land had become primarily owned by wealthy aristocrats. And we saw that happen even in Egypt in this morning's scripture reading, didn't, didn't we? We, we saw the land that had been primarily owned by the people at large uh, uh, through uh, uh, the natural disaster of the famine now becomes owned by one individual, and that was Pharaoh. Well, uh, the same thing kind of happened uh, uh, after the exile where the uh, aristocrats and those who were wealthy and those who were nobles, they came to possess large tracts of land, and they would rent them out to the people uh, who were the people of the land. Uh, in Jesus' time, most people did not own the land that they worked on. They were, they were tenant farmers. They, were, uh, they rented or leased the land. And it's a safe assumption that many in this crowd, remember, Jesus is in the presence of who? The, Sa- the Sanhedrin and the, the people. So many people in this crowd would be comprised, uh, 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 the crowd would be comprised of these tenant workers, tenant farmers, and many of the elders and the priests would be these landlords, would be the, 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 the rich uh, aristocratic people who owned the land. So, so this parable, Jesus is crafting this so that it is immediately relatable to his audience. And they would be uh, familiar with the renter's contract between the tenant and the landowner. And, and this is exactly what we saw uh, in Genesis 47. Pharaoh, or in this case, the, the, the landowners, they provide the land. They would provide the land and the vineyard, and the tenants provide the manual labor. They would harvest the produce. They would process the produce. They would sell the produce. And then uh, after the uh, uh, money has been made, whatever the agreed upon amount was, I heard uh, one guy said it would be anywhere from 10 to 5%. One guy said it was more like one-third to one-half of the proceeds would go to the landowner. But whatever the amount is, doesn't really matter. Whatever it was, here's the thing, it was mutually agreed upon, right? There's no... You know, there, there's no contracts with fine print that you can't read, and then you're surprised by what you agreed to. It was understood 
that when the, when the landowner sends his servant to come collect, it was understood there is an expected return. And that could take four or five years, especially if it was a freshly planted vineyard. It would take a number of years before it uh, could expect to produce fruit. And, and isn't this why we invest? So that there's a return, right? Does anybody invest just, well, whatever happens. If I get nothing, whatever. Don't we invest so that we get a return? Yeah, so, so th- this is expected. And then we see it, and we see uh, logically at the verse 2, at, at the harvest time, whenever this is, whether, it, whether it's three or four or five years, the owner sends a slave to the vine growers. Why? In order to in order to receive some of the produce or the proceeds from the vineyard. Now, everything up here is relatable. Everything up to this point would, would, would have the, the amount of shock as me telling you, I went to Starbucks and I got a grande coffee. Like, nothing surprising, nothing shocking. Here's now where the shocks begin to fall. Verse 2, the, sl- the slave is sent to receive the owner's rightful proceeds. And then verse 3, what happens? They took him, they beat him, and they send him away, not with payment, but with what in his hand? Absolutely nothing. And, you know, we might, we might say to ourselves, uh, what, what were they thinking? How is this going to go well for them? This is, there's a contract they agreed to. Do they think that they're going to get away with that? And that's a good question to ask. It's a good question to ask as we go through and see the progression. And notice there is going to be a dual progression of shock because their criminal offenses is going to get worse and worse and more reprehensible and more wicked and the response of the landowner is going to uh, progress and be more shocking as well as he is more and more patient and more and more kind. Verse 4, again, he sent them another slave. He, he overlooked that first trespass and he sends another slave. That's, that's kindness. That's shocking. You wouldn't expect a landowner to, to do that. But what's, what's the progressed response of the tenants? They, do they just simply beat him and send him away empty-handed? What, what do they do? They wound him in the head. This is, this is a more severe beating than, the, than, the first, than what happened to the first servant. The, uh, literally means to bash in his head and the, the Tyndale. Some of the, some of the older English Bibles, like the Tyndale or the Geneva Bible, will say they broke his head to give you an idea of what they did. This is a, this is a progressive uh, injury. This is a serious injury. And they not only did that, they treat him shamefully. Now, that, by this point, you know, if this had happened to you or to someone you know, you, you would be taking civil action. You would be, getting, you would be calling up lawyers. You would be, you would be getting uh, uh, lawyers or the city elders. But what does the owner do? He overlooks their despicable behavior yet again. He is patient. And what does he do? He sends another. And then what do they do? Do they simply beat him? Do they simply injure him in the head? 
What do they do? They kill him. And then, kind of as if, as if it's an afterthought, as if it's a side note, they, and so, and so this happened with many others, beating some and killing others. And this owner, the owner is showing great pains to be, to be kind and to be patient. And as you're reading this, as we're hearing this, you might think to yourself, he's being patient to the point of being irresponsible. And this is incredulous. This is, this is hard to believe that he is, that he is being that patient. He, he, justice, retribution ought to be done. And he's just sitting there doing nothing. It's unbelievable, but that's the point. And Jesus is going somewhere with this. So he sends many servants and some are beaten, some are killed. They're all rejected. In verse 6, there's one more he can send. The owner has one left. He's exhausted his servants. He's exhausted his slaves. He has one left. And who is it? Is it, a, is it just another mere servant? Is it just another guy on the roster? Who is it? A favored, a beloved son. This is, this is not just a servant. This is the owner's son, the beloved son. This is the apple of his eye. And since they say to him, this is the, this is the inheritor, he's, pro- he's probably the firstborn. Possibly he's the only son of, of the owner. He is, he is the apple of the father's eye. He is the inheritor of everything that, that, own, that is owned by the father. This is the one who the Father has, has brought up and reared and trained and instructed and has poured his life into. He is the last one in the house who is qualified, who is capable to go and to collect what is owed. And, you know, you may, you may be following along with the story and you may know where this is going. You may anticipate how this is going to end. And you, you may be saying to yourself, no, no, don't, don't send the son. Don't. What's this guy thinking? How, how can he expect this to, to, go, to turn out well? What is he doing sending his beloved son? But what is the, what is the father's, what is the owner's reasoning? He, what does he say to himself? What's, it, what's his explanation for this? They'll respect my boy. It, sending my son is tantamount to sending me. He is my blood and flesh. He has my name. It's as if I, it's it's good, just as good as if I were to go myself. Surely they would respect him. Surely this would give them sobriety. Surely this would show them the the error of their ways, and they, they would come to their senses. But look, look at verse seven. Notice Jesus in his description. He's already distancing himself. But those vine growers, you know, isn't that the, isn't that how we talk about someone when 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 we make them the antagonist? Of a, of a story. Yeah, but that, but that Bob, you know how that Bob is. Though that, uh, those vine growers, they said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and all. the inheritance will be ours. And, and again, we have to ask the obvious question. What were they thinking? What, what were they thinking? I mean, why why do this? Why, on, on what grounds could they expect to get away with this criminal action? 
well. Remember that after the man had uh, had planted this vineyard and he rented it out, he doesn't stick around. He goes on a journey. This would be the this would be relatable, especially if the landowner didn't live in the immediate region. So he has gone on a journey, and if he's waiting for the time for the for the uh, for the produce to be uh, uh, expected, he's probably waited four or five years. The Levitical law actually required a minimum of three years. So, so some time has passed. These workers have been in the vineyard for more than just a few weeks. It's been years. They, they have begun to feel entitled to this land. It's, it's their land. And some would say, and this isn't definite, but some would say that uh, 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 allegedly unremained, uh, um, uh, unclaimed land that had remained unclaimed for three years would become the property of those working on it. That's, uh, um, that's an apocryphal, that's, a, that's an additional or extra biblical uh, thing that has been uh, purported. Uh, it's not in the law, so we don't know for sure. They haven't seen the man for a while, and maybe maybe on the eve of that third year, and they're anticipating, we haven't seen him, we haven't heard from him, we haven't gotten a memo, we haven't gotten a postcard, we haven't gotten nothing, maybe he's dead. Maybe he's forgotten about this. One more day, unclaimed, uncontested, it's ours. That could be the case. And then the sun shows up on the very last day at the last minute. And if an oopsie were to happen to him, who would know? And they could claim it for themselves. That's a speculation. Another speculation is, is that maybe the man didn't come himself, and so the tenants imagined he must be dead. He can't come claim it because he's not around. He's not alive to do it. And if he's dead and his only son, the only inheritor to the whole estate, is now walking alone and vulnerable on the road, well, what? who would know if an oopsie, if a little accident were to happen to him and he were to go missing? There'd be nobody left to legally claim the land. Now, does the text tell us their logic? Does the text tell us on what grounds they thought they could get away with it? Yeah. It doesn't, and personally, I think the Scripture does a really good job at, at showing us that sin makes us stupid. So I, I don't believe they were had any logical grounds to think this through. I mean, how many times do we do something stupid and sinful, and we, we say to ourselves, what, were, what was I thinking? Or if you have a spouse, she, may, she or he may say, what were you thinking, honey? That happens. So... Verse 8, they, they go through, they carry out their st- sinful and stupid plan. They took him and killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. They, they, this, their, imp- their sinfully impulsed, impulse-driven plan, they carry it out, and they don't even have the decency to give him a proper burial. They just, they just toss him on the byway to rot like a, like a, like a dead animal. They just threw him out. Of the vineyard, and then, so he, so he gets so he, he looks the Sanhedrin square in the eyes. However many there were, the, the the representatives of the chiefs, chief priests, and the scribes and the elders, and he looks them in the eye and he says, "Now you tell me, what will the what will the owner do? What will the owner of the vineyard do?" 
Now, Mark, Mark provides this, and I'll get into this in a second. Mark provides us the answer. He will come and destroy the vine growers, and he will give the vineyard to others. Mark has Jesus giving the answer, and there's a detail we'll look at in a little bit. But he will come. He's not, he will not delay any longer. He will not overlook this trespass. He will come. Let, let the certainty of the future tense hit you in the face with this. He not, it's not that he might come. He will come, and he will destroy the vine growers, and he will give the vineyard to others. Now, that's the parable. And something we need to ask of, of every parable and, and of every scripture. What does this mean? Well, we hear things like four score and what comes to our minds instinctively. Four score and seven years. Okay. Now, our minds instantly connect the dots. And this, this, is exa- this is what happened with Israel in the Old Testament scriptures as well. Not only was this something, not only were the scriptures something that they heard on a weekly, if not daily basis. Did you know that the, that the Jews had, a, had a, a reading program in the, uh, it was a reading cycle in the synagogue, and they would go through the entirety of the Old Testament every three years. So that by the age of 60, every, every Israelite would have heard the entirety of the scriptures at least three times. And that's in addition to whatever was taught or explained within the home. That was just church. I'd be glad we read one chapter. So, so not only was this something that they heard and was read to them on a regular basis, but this was their history. Do you realize that the books of Moses was the charter for the nation. It was, it was the history of how they had become a people and how they had come to acquire the land. This is their history. And so when Jesus begins with verse 1, he says, a man planted a vineyard. Their minds, because of what they've heard time and time and time again, their minds are going straight to Isaiah 5, verse 2, which, uh, and following which says, my beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around. He removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed a wine vat in it. Now, do do those details, it's not the exact word order, but do those details sound familiar? Yeah? Okay. So, verse 7 of Isaiah 5 gives us a a, a key interpretive, um, uh, uh, I can't say key again, that would be redundant, Verse 7 gives us an interpretive key for understanding this parable. Verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord, so the Lord is the man who planted the vineyard, the Lord is the owner. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his delightful plant. So Isaiah identifies that the man who plants the vineyard is God and that the vineyard is Israel. That's, That's a key to interpreting Isaiah 5. And that key translates over and, and helps us to properly interpret Mark 12, 1 through 9. The vine growers, if, 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 if the vineyard is Israel, who are the vine growers? Who are the people, uh, who are the stewards of Israel? Who are the ones in charge of maintenance and producing a crop in Israel? Who do you think? Who? Yeah, I heard, good job. 
the, the Pharisees, the priests, and the elders. And this is why the parable is against them. The vine growers are the Jewish leaders. They are the ones, you could say, in charge. They're the ones uh, uh, who have a stewardship, who have custody uh, of the vineyard. And the journey taken by the owner, a little hard. Uh, I don't think every detail needs to find an exact equivalent, but we could say the journey taken by the owner represents Old Testament history where, where God, after he has planted Israel, he is now waiting for fruit. The slaves are the Old Testament prophets, beginning with Moses and going all the way down the line to John the Baptist. And these are the men sent by God to to check in, to to collect on the produce that God was hoping to get from Israel. And to that end, to, to collect on the produce that God wants, they denounced the nation's sins and they called the nation back time and time and time again to God. But like the slaves of the parable, like the servants in this little story we just read, the prophets were ignored. The prophets were rejected. They were harassed. They were treated shamefully. They were beaten. And they were killed. If you remember, the people complained against Moses three or four times that we know of. At one point, they were ready to stone him and go back to Egypt because they they had convinced themselves, oh, we had it so good. He, they do say that he that they had garlic in Egypt, so no, okay. So so they complained and murmured and even threatened to kill Moses at one point. Elijah was called the troubler of Israel by the king. Uh, the queen really had it for, out for him. She put a hit out on him. Uh, Elisha was mocked for being bald by a bunch of youths. He had to be rescued by by two she-bears. Jeremiah was harassed his whole ministry. He was accused of treason. He was thrown into a pit. And tradition tells us that he was stoned uh, while the Jews were in exile. Isaiah, uh, tradition says that he was sawn in half. Uh, and uh, by a wooden saw. And if you read Hebrews chapter 11, there's a reference to one being sawn in two. Maybe it was Isaiah. Ezekiel, in chapter 2, verse 6, God describes the words and the attitudes and the the, uh, response of the people of Israel towards Ezekiel the prophet. He he likens them to, to being with thorns and thistles, and sitting on scorpions. Now, how? Yeah. Amos was forced to flee for his life. Zechariah was rejected, and he was stoned, uh, as Matthew twenty three thirty five says, between the altar and the temple. Micah was struck in the face. John the Baptist was left to rot in prison before he finally had his head cut off. Why did this happen to God's servants? Because he rubbed the people and the leaders the wrong way. This just highlights uh, an observation that we made last week. True teachers sent by God, empowered by God, concerned about being faithful to God, they will give the whole counsel of God and they will say what God tells them to say regardless of of, of how it may come back upon them. 
false teachers, are far more concerned about how it affects their wallet, how it affects their Yelp rating, how it affects their attendance. And so the fear of man will govern what they will and won't say. True prophets of God, true teachers, when it comes down to it, are more concerned. They, they fear God more than they fear men. So that is, what, that is Israel's history with, with, with the prophets. And you see how that parallels with the tenants of this vineyard and the, the servants and the slaves that were sent at one after the other. Hebrews 1, 1 to 2 says this, concerning this progression of, of prophets. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in uh, to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. So there you have the, the myriad of the servants or the myriad of the prophets in these last days has spoken to us in not many, but in one who is his son. He has spoken to us in his son. He has sent the prophets. Now he has sent his son. We see that parallel between the real progression of the prophets leading up to the to the coming of the Son of God. And, and then on the other hand, you see the progression of the slave after slave after slave, the progression of the hostility culminating in the rejection and death of the owner's son. So, so I mean, I, I think I've just laid it out, but who, if we're going to continue our interpretation of this parable, who is the beloved son? Good. From the Sunday school teacher of, of all places. Isn't that the proverbial answer for every question in, in uh, children's church? <laughs> Jesus. So J- Jesus is the beloved son of the parable. Is that a surprise to anybody? What the, Now, the, more, the, the important question, the more pertinent question is, is what purpose then does Jesus have in giving the Sanhedrin this parable? Think about that. What's the purpose? If... The vineyard is Israel. And the the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, if they are the tenants, if they're the, the vine growers, and the prophets are the slaves or the servants who have been sent one after the other, one after the other, and until now they have been rejected, scorned, mocked, beaten, and killed. And Jesus is now is now the, the son of uh, Jesus is the son who now arrives on the scene. Here's the question. What is he trying to communicate? What is he telling to the Sanhedrin? What does he tell them in light of the full parable that he gives? What happens to the son? Yeah. What's he trying to communicate to the, to the chief priests? If they're the vine growers, he knows. Yes. He knows what they are planning to do to him and here's the catch this this doesn't come out in uh, in mark's gospel mark has jesus uh giving the answer providing the answer in matthew 21 47 and, and this is just like nathan's parable to david where david impulsively blurts out that man deserves to die in matthew's account they, being the Sanhedrin, the people that Jesus is giving the parable to, they said to him, in response to his question, what will the owner do? They say, this is self-incriminating, self-indicting. They say, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. 
And, and wretched is not a word you can read and get warm fuzzies. It's a bad word. Uh, the word cacophony, an evil sound, uh, something that hurts your ears. Cacos is wretched. So those, re- you know, you shake your head slightly and just um, imagine you just bit into a grapefruit when you say wretched. Those wretched people will come to a wretched end. That is from the mouths. That is from the lips of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. What have they just done to themselves? They've condemned themselves. Now, in Luke's gospel, Luke records them putting two and two together and figuring this out. And they say, whoa, no, may it never be. May it never be. Don't let that happen. And what they said impulsively, what they said self-incriminatingly was the correct answer. So, so Jesus affirms their answer. And this is why Mark, Mark just has Jesus repeating their answer right back to them. He puts the, he puts the word in Jesus' mouth. He, verse 9, he being God, will come. And again, certainty of the future tense. He will come. And destroy the vine growers. And he will give the vineyard to others. Now the destruction of the vine growers. This, this, is, this would be fulfilled in 70 AD. When the Romans would just utterly destroy and level and ransack the city. Not one stone of the glorious temple would be left upon another. And the temple would be completely leveled. The, the, and with this, the whole, the whole priestly system would be eradicated. And, and all the records of the Jews will be lost. And they've been lost to this day. The, the, the Sanhedrin's power base completely wiped off the map. Titus, who was the Roman commander uh, in charge of the siege, he, he said uh, the slaughter of Jeru- Jerusalem, he said it was so devastating it was such a great slaughter that it was as if the God of the Jews had joined with the Romans and fought against his own people. Think about that. God, it was as if God fought against the Jews. And not only would, the, would their stewardship of God's people be taken away, it, was also, it would also be as, a, as an expression of judgment, but also as an expression of gr- Judgment for them, grace for us, the stewardship would be given to the unlikeliest group imaginable. Not, not highly trained scribes, not invested priests with generation after generation of, 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 uh, of priestly lineage and, f- and proud family lines to look back on or great temples to, to, to work in. Who would, steward, who would the stewardship of God's people be given to? Not the priests, not the scribes, not the elders, who? Twelve ordinary, regular guys. Twelve mostly blue-collar, thank you, John, for that earlier. Blue, Twelve mostly blue-collar fishermen. One was a former tax collector. One was a former zealot. We, we know nothing about Matthias or what he did. These are not elite men. And I mean, up until this point in the gospel, hasn't that been painfully obvious? These are not the sharpest tools in the shed. These are spiritually dull men until Jesus is done with them. These 
these men would be given the mantle of leadership. It would be these men who would have the privilege of receiving divine inspiration. It would be these men who would be responsible to give holy writ to the early church. They would be sent out as God's ambassadors and ambassadors to the world. And you read that in, in Genesis in uh, Acts, don't we? When the early church gathered, did they did they study and read the teaching of the priests? Did they read and study the, the teaching of the scribes or the rabbis? Whose teaching, whose doctrine did they dedicate themselves and commit themselves to know? The apostles. These ordinary men whom Christ has trained and sent out to the world. So the parable was to convey to them, to the Sanhedrin, Jesus knows what they're about to do. He knows they are going to kill him. He knows they want to kill him because they see him as a threat to their system, to their power base, to their money making to their influence, to their pride and their egos. He's a threat to them. And because they want to keep their grubby paws on all that stuff, they're going to kill him just like the, just like the vine growers would just flippantly kill the son and cast him out. And notice, they cast him out of the vineyard. That, you could interpret that either as the, the Jews as a whole uh, rejecting Jesus. Remember, he came to his own and his own accepted him not, or his own did not receive him. It could be that, or it could be that Jesus was executed where? Outside the city. Yeah. So whichever one floats your boat, use that interpretation. Jesus knows what they're going to do. And he knows what they're going to do and why they're going to do it. They want to, they want to keep their grubby paws on their little thrones, their own petty little uh, system of power. But God's going to come. He's going to smash them, and he's going to give what they had to somebody else. He's going to give what they had to somebody who is going to produce the fruit that God wants. That's the, that's the heavenly truth tethered to this earthly story. That's the parable. And in God's providence, I have eight minutes to finish. Let's go to the indictment. Verse 10. Jesus asks, have you not read this scripture? That would be a burn to the scribes. Of course they've read the scripture. And, I, and I'm pretty sure that they have even read that, that, that very, the scripture that Jesus is going to uh, allude to. They've read this this week. And you ask me, how do I know? Well, turn to Psalm. Uh, you should have your finger in Psalm 118. 118. 118. Ah, you thought I said 119. Eh, someday. Okay, look, uh, uh, the verse that, that Jesus uh, reads in verses 10 to 11 are provided in 22 to 23. Do you tell, me, tell me when you see it. The stone which the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now, on, on what basis am I pretty sure that the scribes, at least the scribes, uh, if not the whole Sanhedrin, have read this psalm? Look, um, look down at verse 25. The, the word for save, you see, O Lord, do save. 
Do you see that? The word for save or save us is Hosanna. So put in Hosanna and now read verse 26. Sound familiar? Triumphal entry. Yeah. When they heard two days ago, when they heard this psalm, when they heard verse 25 and 26 of Psalm 118 coming from the lips of hundreds and thousands and maybe tens of thousands of people on the road to the city, I would have, you would think that they would have gone and looked up that psalm to, to see whether or not they're using it correctly. I mean, wouldn't you? Wouldn't that at least have piqued your curiosity? So in all likelihood... They have read that psalm this week. If, if they haven't, it's nevertheless a psalm that they would have been very familiar with. But they clearly didn't understand it. And here's another parable. And, and Jesus is changing from an agricultural uh, parable to a construction par- uh, uh, parable. The builders are the religious leaders because they are building the, the temple. Whether, and whether the temple is the actual temple or the kingdom of God or the people of God, we don't really know. But in their building, whatever, whatever it is they're building, in their, in their priestly work, in their scribal work, in their religious duties, they are presented with this cornerstone. And the cornerstone is, is used to start the foundation. It is perhaps the most important piece in the construction of, a, of an ancient Near Eastern house because the cornerstone would be the first stone to be put down and the, contour, the, uh, the, the angle and the sides and the shape of this stone would direct and dictate how the walls and how the, really the whole edifice and the whole building would go. I mean, it, from this one stone, two walls would, uh, would, would, would go. And the wall, not only would they go out, but they would go up. So this stone has to be perfect. You ever, anyone ever like figured they would just go build something, you know, on a whim? And after a while, the whole thing, at one point it leans this way and another point it leans that way. And maybe it billows in or billows out. And over time, it eventually collapses. You want, some people are looking at their spouses. I recommend not. Um, the, 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 the foundation, those of you who are in construction know the foundation has to be, it's important. It has to be right. Well, they're presented with this cornerstone and they look at it, they scrutinize it, they inspect it, they evaluate it. You know what they conclude? No bueno. This is a flawed cornerstone. It doesn't match their schematics. If they use this stone, things, if, if we use this to build our temple, uh, if, we, if we use this stone to build God's temple and, and, and the kingdom of God or the people of God or whatever, whatever the metaphor is, things aren't, here's the gist, it's not going to go the way we want things to go. We can't use this cornerstone that's been provided, so we're going to chuck it. So they reject it. And, but that's, praise the Lord, that's not the end of the story. Because what does the psalm say? The, the, reject, the builders on their part, they reject the stone. But what's the final outcome of the stone? What has become of it? It has, what is it? Where, verse, go back to verse 22, the second line. What, what, what happens to the stone? It has, yeah, it has become the chief cornerstone. It was tossed out. It was chucked. But somehow it ends up being used for the construction of the temple anyway. How did that happen? Well, 
the psalmist tells us, verse 23. This wasn't man's doing. It was the Lord's doing. And what, and what, what emotion does this, does, does this discovery that, that man plans this but God does that, what emotional uh, response does this invoke in the psalmist? It was pretty cool. Is is I, you know, I, it was marvelous in our eyes. Man can scheme till he's blue in the face. God will come in, still come in and do what he wants to do, and it's marvelous. And that's the indictment to the Sanhedrin. Jesus is saying, "Your own scriptures say your plan to kill me, which I know you're going to do, and which the first parable clearly lays out." Your own scriptures, Psalm one eighteen. Verse 22 and 23 tells you your plan will not work. Or haven't you read it? Oh, that would burn people, the people of the book. Ha- haven't you? It'd be like me going to Cliff. Cliff, ha- haven't you even read the insurance manual? Jesus is saying, I, I know your plan. God knows your plan. God knows what you're going to do, and he even says in your book it's not going to work. Now, don't you think this would be a good time to repent and believe? Do you want to be found fighting against God? Okay, that's, that's the indictment. Now the response. Verse 12. They were... And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people. They were seeking to seize him. Man, they were in such a hurry to fulfill the words of Jesus. They want to fulfill prophecy so bad. No. Why, why do they want to seize him? Because they hate him. Their very thought, I mean, how blind, how sinfully stupid can sin make, make you? That their very thoughts, their very the, the rage that is coming into their heart right now is fulfilling Jesus' very words. I mean, have you ever been so mad that you've just you don't care what anyone says? That's where they are right now. They want to seize him, but they don't. Why? And yet they feared the people. Sin not only makes you stupid, sin makes you a coward. Steve Lawson call, calls these men gutless wonders. They're hypocritical cowards because they feared, they don't fear God who can destroy both body and soul. They fear men who can only kill the body. They, in in Matthew's, Matthew's account, they, or no, Mark says they understood that they, he spoke the parable against them. This is irony. Parables usually conceal the truth from unbelievers. Here they understand the parable was against them. And, but they realize they can't touch him because the people are hanging on his every word, at least for another two days. And so they went away. They, they went away as a unified group. Now we're going to see the, Sanhedrin, the, the Sadducees. We're going to see the Hellenists. We're going to see scribes by their own. For the time being, this united attack is concluded. Now what do we walk away with? There are four points, and I'll try to make this brief because my phone's red. But it's important. We must see and we must be reminded that the expectation of God for his people is good fruit. Good 
fruit. The Lord expected good grapes from his orchard, according to Isaiah, and time and time again, he got not good fruit, he got sour berries. And remember the fig tree that Jesus cursed just a few days ago. It, it looked really promising. It looked very green with lush leaves. It, looked, it, was like a, it was like a church body that looks very religious. And they, they have a great attendance, and they tithe, and they come to church all the time, and they even wear suits. They don't say bad words. They're very religious. Very, they look very pious, but inwardly, their hearts are far from God. It's like the fig tree with no fruit. Beloved, what does the Lord get from you? What does he get from you? Surely you must know that, he, that his grace has come upon your life and he has set each and every one of you. He, set up, he has set us up as a church like a beautiful vineyard. But surely you must see and you can account for the fact that God's grace has been real and present and at work in your lives. He has set you up like a beautiful vineyard. What is he getting when he visits you? Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works. We are created for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That, that walking is a metaphor for the way you live your life. We ought to be living our life in good works. So let me exhort you, give what is due to the Son. We don't, we don't give so that we can be saved. We give because we are saved and because he has blessed us, right? I don't need to, uh, we, we understand the distinction between trying to earn salvation and serving God because of salvation. We get that, right? So God expects good fruit. Secondly, the patience of God is longstanding. How many thought that the patience and the kindness and the forbearance of the owner was approaching irresponsibility? But isn't that precisely what we see in God in his dealing with the Jews in the Old Testament? Isn't that precisely what we see with Jesus, with the disciples? Surely you must know that if God gave us what we deserved, we would have been wiped from the map a long time ago, right? God's general uh, pattern is to be exceedingly long-suffering, exceedingly patient. And I'm glad he's not like a man. Luther said, if I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would have kicked that wretched thing to pieces. Praise God that God is not like us. The fact that we are still breathing testifies God is incredibly, incredibly patient. So God expects good fruit. His patience is wonderful. But also know that the severity of God is devastating. Now we know that Romans 8.1 says, is there any condemnation for those in Christ Jesus? Right. In Christ, there's no condemnation. But, beloved, here's another sobering truth. Not all are in Christ. Not all who profess to be in Christ are in Christ. And Scripture warns us there are many in the visible church who think they are right with God but are not. There are many who play church and they think that they can be right in God's eyes because of, of something religious they've done, because of, of something religious they are doing, or maybe for something religious or good that they promise they'll do. 
Now, God's patience is long, but there comes a point where even where God says enough is enough. First Peter five seventeen, Peter writes for the if for it is the time of judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 70 AD will seem like a small trifle skirmish compared to the judgment that will befall unbelievers in the last day. Don't be among, numbered among them. The last is that the triumph of God is sure. We looked at this back on Good Friday, for those of you who are here. Was there ever any doubt that God's plan would come to fruition? Is there ever any doubt that man can throw a monkey wrench in God's plans? Was there, any, was there any lack of confidence in the words and in the attitude of Christ as he underwent his passion? Luke concludes this text with these words. Any, everyone who falls on that stone, it, he concludes this parable. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And that comes from a, a rabbinical saying that if, if a stone falls on a pot, which one breaks? The pot. If the pot falls on the stone, which one breaks? Yeah. Either way, the results are the same. The, the stone wins, the pot loses. What's the point? Don't go up against the stone. Don't go up the stone. Be reconciled to Christ. Be reconciled to Christ. Come to him, as 1 Peter 2.4 says, as a living stone, which, which this text uh, 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 mimics or, or echoes, a stone that is choice, a stone that is precious in the, in the sight of God so that you can be built up for, as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Christ Jesus. There's the fruit he's looking for. There's the fruit he's looking for. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We 